Is this the, now Zionsville schools were on fall break, and this is the end of their fall break, correct? Okay. And is anybody else's fall break beginning now? Yeah. Uh, well, I know my, my wife's is, Lebanon. Where, where is yours? You have two weeks off. This, this, is, this is befuddles me. Um, two weeks. You know, they, they shorten up, they shorten up the summer vacations because they claim that the kids forget everything in between. I've seen kids that can forget after one day. Uh, um, I, I don't, I think, I think two weeks, they don't even know uh, how to find their way back to school after two weeks. So that is, um, that's a mystery. I'm, I'm kind of of the old model. I, I, was, I was telling, um, we have um, uh, a member of our congregation who's Finnish. And every time I see her, I impart to her something I've learned about Finland. And um, uh, this last week, uh, there was an interview that was on, I think it was on TV. Um, and uh, they've discovered that, that in Finland, the, fin the Finns actually are the highest performing academically in the world. Uh, you, got, you got some Finnish blood? Yeah, you, you got some you got some fin in there, huh? Okay, well that's twenty three percent Scandinavian. I I I feel kinship now. Well, the 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 fins are of course you know a, a little different. They're actually the real fin is actually not a Scandinavian. Uh, the real fins are actually related to the Hungarians, and they're related to the Estonians. And they are a tribe that came in from a different part of the world, from the, uh, from the east. But uh, most of them are intermarried with all the Swedes and such. But anyway, uh, back to the, the, to the Swedes, I mean to the Finns. Um, Finland has the highest performance in academics in the world. The United States, I think, is somewhere around 39th in the world. And, um, and so they went over to kind of find out what, what they were doing, and they discovered that the Finns go to, they attend school the least. They only spend about two to three hours a day at school. They do not have any homework, and they don't teach to test. Um, now, having a homogenous population is something that says something. But at the same time, um, nobody in the United States can figure out how in the world you know, the, if your kids are not performing well, what you do is you send them to more school and they get more burnt out and so they perform less. Um, what do kids need? They, they say they need to be able to have breaks, they need to be able to let their mind off and they concentrate much more actually when you, sim when you teach, you teach. When you play, you play. You don't play when you teach and teach when you play. Um, this, is, this is a, I, it kind of relates maybe also to church. You know, it wouldn't be a, such a bad idea that you don't make church into playtime. Um, you don't make it into entertainment. You use it for a meaningful worship and teaching and proclamation of God's word. And wonderfully, people carry that throughout the entire week. So 
good, to the, good for the Finns. Uh, I'm happy to see that they're setting the example and maybe we can start getting a little bit more freedom in our schools uh, if we start learning from their example. So um, today um, we are, it's hard to believe that we're going to have almost 500 people in church next week. Um, um, anyway, in preparation for this great and marvelous thing that happened in the Reformation. And I, I, I just don't think that it is, that we grasp what an incredible explosion took place at this time. Now, it was, it was, it was preparing. I mean, it was, the, the gasoline was leaking uh, all through Europe. And even the emperor himself, the emperor Charles V, he attended the same school, school for the something brethren, that Martin Luther did when he was in Magdeburg. In other words, uh, he was raised being very kind of upset at the corruption that was taking place in the Roman Catholic Church. But once you become emperor, you've got a responsibility to hold, tie the whole thing together. And he was no true, he was no real friend of the emperor, uh, of, the, uh, of the pope. Uh, in fact, it wasn't long after uh, the defeat of the Small Caldic League that uh, he had to defeat the pope in, in his own territory um, with his own army. But nevertheless, uh, the status quo was the status quo, and so he had to marshal his army, and they had to go after all these Lutherans, and one year after Martin Luther died, he was standing at his grave, and the Roman Catholic legate was saying, dig him up and destroy, scatter his bones, and even at that, the emperor said, no, uh, we'll let it lie. So, um, with the Lutheran Reformation and the spread of the Reformation, things radically changed. One of them was, uh, and it's going to be connected to our study today, was marriage. Um, marriage took on an incredibly significant role in the life of the people in Lutheran lands. And when you figure that the holiest person among you is a person who has renounced marriage, then um, it doesn't always make marriage look like it's a very holy institution. In fact, Luther will speak about that. So we're going to be uh, talking a little bit about what, uh, what Peter says about marriage and some things that are not very politically correct today because um, I think when we... Political correctness is... What they do is they, uh, they, they make assumptions that you buy, you buy into by virtue of their popularity. That um, men are abusive, that men are bad, that men are repressive of women, and so therefore women need to be able to push back against men in order to be able to be free and liberated. And um, there, are, there are things, I think, in, in Peter's epistle that speak to some of those that fear-mongering that takes place. Let's uh, let's. Can you turn your Bibles to First Peter, chapter three? The whole chapter there. Okay.
Are you ready? Let's say a prayer first. Heavenly Father, You have graciously sent Your Son to show us the true way of peace in this world. We know that we cannot always achieve peace outwardly. We do know that You, by Your Holy Spirit, are able to give us peace inwardly. Grant us peace, we pray, in Your mercy, Lord. Peace in our marriages. Peace in our church. Peace in our communities and in our country. Peace insofar as it is possible within the world itself. But we pray that we may never lose the peace of the gospel. And for that, make us always ready to be able to accept the war that is directed against us for the sake of the peace of the gospel. We pray, O Lord, grant us your peace. Amen. All right. Um, I'm going to read the, the first part here. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. Now, in the same way, obviously, he's making reference to the way in which we, our relationship with Christ. In the same way, be submissive to your husbands. That word, um, I just want to stop for a second and just say that the word submissive, tapainos, um, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem upon a donkey, he enters in humility. That is what this word is saying. That the way in which we approach uh, another person is with the spirit of Christ who is riding upon that donkey as he comes to Jerusalem. He's coming in peace. So it doesn't mean uh, submissive in the, in the sense that a slave would be submissive to a master. It means that you are a person of humility. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Um, in our little outline, I say, first of all, submission as evangelism, question mark, question mark, question mark. How many of you know somebody who has uh, the faith, a, a woman who is a, is a believer, and she's got a husband who is an unbeliever. Uh, do you know anybody like that? And maybe one or two. I, I think a lot of, uh, it, it's, it's a really hard thing for us to be able to say to our kids. But we don't want our kids marrying people who are not Christians. And I, I my son Hans, he rails about this even more because he is living in a community up in the sh outside of Chicago where, where it seems as though women think that, that maybe they can change these men that they marry and they're going to, into marriage with a person that they know is, a, is not interested in the church, he's not interested in the faith and so on, and yet they still marry them. And then they're surprised when they have children that their husband doesn't want to go to church and then their kids don't want to go to church. And guess what happens? 
then they find it to be too difficult and they don't go to church either. This is, uh, this, this is an issue. Now, in these days, there would be conversions that would take place and a, a spouse would converse and, uh, con- convert and then the other spouse would remain as an unbeliever, right? So it isn't like he's saying, go ahead and get married to anybody that you want to and maybe you'll be able to convert them. He's really saying, you are people who are converted and you have a spouse who is an unbeliever. And now, how is it that you actually go about converting them? And he seems to feel, and I think probably from human observation, that this is, the, this is probably true, that men have a tendency to win their wives with words. They engage them, they, they discuss these things with them, they, they challenge them. Women uh, sometimes win men in different ways by what they oftentimes don't say. Like, for instance, if Sylvie's mad at me and she stops talking to me for three days, I know that there's something wrong. <laughs> it's, a, it's a painful thing, isn't it, when somebody knows something and they won't uh, tell you what they're thinking. But for these... What he is saying is that actually by the way that women, that these wives would live their lives in purity, what will happen is it'll open up the door to a husband's heart and he may, by the grace of God, be willing to listen to what the gospel has to say. Right, little Peter? How are we doing? Good, yeah. You got a cookie? Did you get a cookie? Did grandma give you a cookie? She a mean grandma? She won't give you a cookie? <laughs> Have a little sugar, kid. That's no problem. All right. Um, look at those words. That they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Now he says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. He is speaking very much to the Greeks. And the Greek women, they, it, a sign of their, I guess you might say, of their, their pretended worth was that they would actually braid in gold, gold strands into their hair. And you can just kind of see in this Greek world these women with this jet black hair with their hair braided up with all this gold and this gold jewelry. This was, you were wearing your, your worth. Now we just drive really nice cars, right? <laughs> Maybe it's a little different. But what he was trying to say is, what, what, are, they, what are they thinking? What are, what's going on in the minds of a person who is wearing their worth as they come into God's house? Do you... How many of you remember women wearing furs? Yeah. The animal rights activists have pretty much driven all of those furs out uh, nowadays. And probably the fact that we even have heating in churches probably also makes a difference because, you know, it used to be that churches were not very well heated and women wore fur because of the fact that it was actually a way of keeping warm. 
But as a little kid, I can always remember, you know, those, those fox furs, you know, the ones that were kind of the things. That, and, and they always had a head with two beady eyes. And as a little kid, you're just looking at these beady eyes in church. It was a little strange. But, um, but we're going to see some of the things that Martin Luther has to say about this. And the idea being, we're not coming to church to try to tell everybody how much more, how much richer we are than other people. And we, this is not a matter of a show or a, pre, a show of ourselves. This is where it is that we come for the purpose of showing our reverence to God. And so, therefore, it's going to be a little different the way it's okay, Luther would say, it's okay to go to a wedding like that, but it's not in God's house. For in verse 5, in this way, the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her, and this word here is master, but it's called her Lord, Kyrios. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. Um, I'm going to turn around and throw it back on husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate with you as you live with your wives and treat them with respect, that is, with honor, as the weaker partner. Now, that, that really kind of puts the old dander right up on women, and they don't really like that phrase. But um, that if we understand this word in the right way, what we have to do is we have to, maybe, maybe the word as the more vulnerable partner, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Heirs with you, which means inequality. And then the idea of prayers. All right. Well, let's have a look at we just, this Reformation time. Uh, we have to look at what some of the things that Luther says. He is such a great guy. If you look here in this first quote, the first paragraph, he says, I wouldn't give up my Katie for France or for Venice. First, because God gave her to me and gave me to her. That's a kind of a foundational thing, isn't it? That uh, when we think of marriage, uh, we have to say, this person was given to me by God. It's a bigger thing. I think actually, you know, they, they tell the story that here Katie, you know, she came, these, these so-called nuns, these women who had been cloistered uh, in those days. They, they call her a nun, but I don't think she was really a, a nun-nun. Um, if you came from a noble family and your family was not able to provide you with enough financial resources to get married, like a dowry, you were not marriageable to other men who were of the same noble class. And even men who did not have that kind of money would usually get some little house that was uh, off on the estate someplace. If their older brother was the one who received the inheritance of the estate, you just got a little house and then you didn't marry because you had nothing to really pass on to your heirs. So um, 
these women, like Catherine Van Bora, she came from a family where they probably could not put up enough money for a dowry. And so they, they, what do you do with them? Um, you send them off to a kind of a convent where they can't fool around, they can't party, they have to spend their lifetime going to church services and praying and whatever. Uh, maybe you're kind of running, uh, usually a monastery or convent had uh, property. And so they would have mills and they would have people that worked for them and such and they would, kind of like nuns, they would run the whole thing, like these hospitals over here that are run by nuns, St. Vincent's Hospital. They would do that. Well, Catherine von Bora had heard about Luther. She saw his writings. And then she and a group of other of these nuns, if you will, um, snuck out of where they had been kept. The only way that they could get out was that the guy who came with the pickle barrels, um, you know, they would give them pickles and then they would have these smelly pickle barrels. They got inside of the pickle barrels and they bribed the guy to take them out of the monastery. So uh, you could say that she was pickled um, when she left and probably didn't smell too good either. So they got to Wittenberg and Luther set about uh, choosing and lining up husbands for all of these women that escaped with her. And um, it came to Katie, and she just wouldn't have anybody else. And finally, Luther, just kind of exasperated, wanted to know what in the world he was supposed to do with her, and she indicated that she wanted him. And Luther, I don't know if he just hadn't thought about it, or if it, looked like, it was like maybe this is an encumbrance. He was living, you know, in, a, in, a, in this house this, uh, where all the monks were, and... Um, and so finally, she was strong-headed enough that I think God chose her for him by her choosing him, if you put it that way. And so um, Martin finally acquiesced, um, kind of the reverse of the way it kind of usually works, right? I mean, he asked you, right? You didn't ask him. Oh, okay, I just wanted to make sure. And, um, and so he says yes. Well, then... The city of Wittenberg gives them a magnificent wedding, and, um, and guess what beer they served? You don't know this? They served Einbecker beer, that's right, my ancestral beer, and, um, and, uh, and that's, that was, back in those days, uh, serving beer at your wedding was a pretty high thing. I mean, you, not everybody was even permitted to have beer at their wedding. So it was a big deal. Well, anyway, he, he said he loved his Katie because God gave her to him and he, him to her. Secondly, because I have often observed that other women have more shortcomings than my Katie, although she too has some shortcomings. They are outweighed by a great many virtues. How many of you count the blessings of your wife by the shortcomings of other women? I can tell you the truth. There are a few times that a guy just simply goes, especially when you go back for your class reunion. <laughs> and third, because she keeps faith in marriage, that is fidelity and respect. 
And let me tell you, that is a crown. To have a wife who maintains fidelity and respect in marriage. A wife ought to think the same way about her husband. Let's look at the next paragraph here where he talks about how marriage was reclaimed uh, under the gospel. For since the rebirth of the completely clear light of the gospel, we know that marriage is sacred and permissible and that it is a divine ordinance. You know, the Roman Catholic Church considers marriage, they call it a sacrament. And sometimes people will come to you and they'll say, how many sacraments do you Lutherans have? What is our response? How many fingers do we hold up? Is it seven like the, sacri- like the Roman Catholic? Usually we say two, but really our confessions say three. And that is baptism, the Lord's Supper, and absolution. So in other words, it's kind of connected to the pastoral office. The Lutherans just simply said, when we do, it's the definition of a sacrament is, is this, that it has to have a divine command, do this, it actually has to have an external element to which the, that thing is attached. Like in baptism, it's water. In the Lord's Supper, it's, it's, it's the, uh, the bread and the wine. And then, of course, in absolution, it's really connected to the pastoral office. Somebody is absolving you. And then it has to bring with it the forgiveness of sins. Now, if it doesn't have those three things, we just don't call it a sacrament. But that doesn't mean that certain things aren't commanded. Does God command us? Does God bless? Does God indicate that there is a a blessing connected to marriage? Yes. Does it bring the forgiveness of sins? No. See? So in other words, if we don't call it a sacrament, it doesn't mean that we don't consider it to be sacred. It is sacred because it comes with God's blessing. And it is connected to God's command as well. Since the rebirth of the completely, and so on and so forth, the divine ordinance, it is not disgraceful or dishonorable to become a spouse as we thought in former times because we had been led into error by the monks. No, it is honorable and sacred. We know, of course, that it has been horribly dishonored by lust. And for this reason, many considered it disgraceful to court a girl and to contract a marriage as though it were something foul and unclean. Now, how does that happen that it becomes like that? Well, you kind of think about it in this way that very often a man would not get married until he had established himself in his profession, until you became wealthy enough to be able to actually get married. Do you remember, how many of you remember the um, uh, Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah, yeah. how it is that they're going to marry her off to the town baker or butcher, right? The guy with greasy hands and he's, you know, 15, 20 years older than she is and you're just going, "Ah, you're going to have to get married. Well, you know, of course, they arrange marriages and it was not uncommon to marry somebody who might be 10, 11, 15 years younger than you are. And you've been waiting all this time and you've been working all this time 
in order to be able to have a wife. And then you go to church and there you see this beautiful young thing and the thought in your mind is not, let me find this wonderful person that I could come to know and who will share with me in my life and who will be my best friend and partner. The guy is saying, I'd like to have a piece of that. <laughs> and so in the, minds, in the minds of these people, there's this kind of this lustfulness that's going on and the, marriage is just kind of like this, <laughs> you know what I mean, you know what I mean. And that these guys are lusting after these young things and they want to satisfy the sexual desire. So you say, what does it mean to lead a pure life? Well, you're leading a, a pure life by avoiding women. And indeed, if you look at the way in which the nobility were living, the nobility, it didn't matter who the heck you were married to. You had a little honey on the side. And there, of course, they look at that too and they go, this is despicable. Marriage is something for people to satisfy their carnal lusts. And Luther comes along and he says, you know what? According to God and his word, marriage is a beautiful, wonderful thing where a man and a woman can love and respect each other. And look at here, look at how it is that Luther loved that Katie and how that Katie loved Luther. We are told that in the Reformation, all these priests taking wives for themselves and in the parsonages, they call them, we call them parsonages today, where the pastors lived, their children were brought up and became models to the community of the way in which children should be raised. And they, they did a wonderful job. And Germany was transformed. The house was transformed. Families were transformed. And Luther would say, when it came especially down to such things as education, he would say, God, because the people didn't want to put, put the, up the money to build schools so that their children could be, could, could be educated. Luther said, God can make your children rich on their own. That is to say, invest in their education. Raise those children to be able to read. Raise those children to be... And Germany blossomed in the area of the literature, it blossomed in the area of the sciences, it blossomed in commerce, and the, this area of the Reformation became extremely prosperous. And much of it was connected, in fact, not, I would say almost all of it was connected to the way in which the family became a central figure in part of the life of the people of the Reformation. So Luther, Luther here says, no, it is honorable and sacred. We know, of course, that it has been horribly dishonored by lust, and for this reason many considered it disgraceful to court a girl and to contract a marriage as though it were something foul and unclean. That work of procreating children was not distinguished from other sins, from fornication and adultery. But thanks to God's kindness, we have now learned and are sure that marriage is honorable, as is stated in Hebrews 13, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. And we are also sure that it is God's will and institution that everyone should have his own spouse, 
who has been lawfully joined to him. Does anybody here have roots in the Frankenmuth area? Does anybody come from that area? Good, I guess we can say anything we want to now. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Who's, who's, who's a Frank? Oh, yes. There's a Frankenmuther. That area. Yeah, Bay City. Well, that whole area up in Michigan probably would not have been populated by Lutherans except that in Germany they had passed a law that if you did not have land, you could not get married. So what would they do if you wanted to get married? Most of them, a lot, good number of them, got onto ship, and the first thing that they did on ship is that they got married. And then they came to America because if they were poor, they could not get married. So um, kind of a reverse of what it is that Luther is saying here. All right. I always, it's good to have all you guys here. I guess the choir was, was meeting, and that's the reason why we had a fewer number of people. Okay, um, now here comes a part that is really hard for most of us to understand. And that is this thing about suffering. Verse 8, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because of this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Um, when you notice um, when that evil comes in our lives and what, how do you know the difference between something that's just merely sinful and, and something that's evil? Do you, can you, what does evil look like? We could start at the top and look at this Kim Jong, whatever it is, in North Korea, right? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Here's a guy who is willing to nuke the entire world if it means that it would be a way to, for him to be glorified. I mean, it, it's, I mean egoism to the, to the ninth degree. We say it's, it's, that takes on actually the dimension of the satanic, right? I think what you found in even guys like Adolf Hitler, that's the classic um, uh, effigy that we set up, Adolf Hitler really rose to a position of such power that he became almost demonically possessed, I think. And the, the annihilation of peoples became a part of his program uh, of, of, I guess, control. But what is, in our daily lives, what does e evil look like? Luther, Luther says, um, he says there, there's the, the white devil and then there's the black devil. Not to say that color is always the way that we identify this, but he says the black devil, is the, is, that's the sneak thief, that's the guy who comes in, who breaks into your house, he robs your stuff, he takes your, your wife, he rapes her, or whatever it might be. That's the, that's the black devil. The white devil is the one who comes with all the religious paraphernalia and who comes appearing to be Christ himself while he is robbing you of the gospel. I, I, um, I, I, I may, just maybe a little diversion here, but 
I, I kind of get upset when I see the Reformed uh, preachers deciding that they want to teach everybody about Martin Luther during this time of the Reformation. You're going to tell your parishioners how great Martin Luther was when you're denying baptism, when you're denying the real presence in the Lord's Supper, when you're denying the very foundational, sacramental life of the church, and yet somehow Martin Luther is your great uh, hero? Really? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it, it's, just, it's almost like there's somebody says, there's a parade! And they're, they're out in front of the parade trying to be able to gain the privilege of Martin Luther. And this is where Martin Luther is honored. But in a strange kind of way, I have to say, I've been reluctant to get out the Martin Luther trumpet and go, Martin Luther, Martin Luther, Martin Luther, because number one, the Reformation took place with a lot of people besides Martin Luther. But number two, What's so great about Martin Luther was that it wasn't all about Martin Luther. It was about the gospel. And what he gave us was not himself. This is the idea of this pre pretense here. We don't, we don't have Martin Luther set up like he's some sort of St. Benedict and Francis of Assisi. Martin Luther was a person who came confessing his sinful nature more so, it was just like the Apostle Paul. You hear more about his honesty about his sinful nature than you hear about. And this is not some glorified guy. He is brilliant. He is probably one of the greatest writers of all time. He, you can't even begin to fathom this guy's mind, but he never ever claimed anything for himself. It was all due to God's grace that was given to him, just like the Apostle Paul. So, I'm, I'm sorry if I, if I am not giving the old Luther trumpet left and right here, but I think at the time of the Reformation, the best way to remember the Reformation is to be Lutherans and to be sacramental Christians now and to defend it and to promote it and to see to it that it gets uh, uh, extended into the world. Uh, that's my, this is called my soapbox right here. And... Um, Beware when I get off the soapbox and get down there. All right. Um, now, what, what, is he, what is he saying? Now, when Christianity comes under that weight of the gospel and the world becomes angry with us and we go, end up going to war with the world because of it, what is the best thing that we can do? Live in harmony with one another. How many churches... I think about half the Missouri Center churches in our country have been started because of controversies inside of congregations. It's terrible. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. You know, they, there's so much talk nowadays about um, narcissism. You know, you can see that there are about, you know, 10 books, good books, uh, about narcissism. One of the great, great characteristics of a narcissist is he's totally incapable of being able to understand the sufferings of the people around him or her. That, in fact, you can impose suffering upon people and you don't feel a doggone thing when you see that person suffering. This is not what Christians are. Christians 
sympathize even in the sufferings of their enemies. Even in the sufferings of their enemies, they sympathize. Love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. And here comes the do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and seek good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. Remember how it is that when Jesus is struck, he doesn't turn around and say, you blankety blank, 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 like the thieves on the cross. And when Paul is struck and he responds with a, with a uh, I guess you might say, a kind of a condemnatory biblical response to the high priest, even then when he comes to recognize as the high priest, even at that, he apologizes because he did not know it was the high priest. It's like going to, when you, if you go into court, the judge, you, know, you don't tell the judge off. That doesn't make for good, good justice. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So in other words, you might think that you could never, ever, ever find peace. That the person who has wronged you is a person that will get away with it for certain unless you do something about it. The eyes of the Lord are on everything. And those who seek for peace, oftentimes we think peace means that we're, uh, what would you call it, that, that we're, that we're weak because we don't want to go to war, that we want peace. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who actually do seek for peace. And he, in the end, always brings about a victory. Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Now let me just grab that for a second. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. When evil comes, we, can, we think of all the consequences of evil. By the way, going all the way back to that definition of evil, the, the Greeks sometimes called evil, they, they, when a person was under the influence of evil, they would say that they used the word planao, where we get the word planet. A planao, the, what mystified them about the planets is that they didn't understand the orbits of the planets. So they would see it here, and then they would see it there, and then they would see it there, and they had no idea of how it is that it got from here to there to there. And so if evil is something that has no explanation for how it got to be what it is. When, the, when a person's sinful, when they do something that's wrong, oftentimes you can say, you know, they were raised this way, they're being rewarded for this, they're doing this because they're greedy, and so on and so forth. Evil 
is something that you look at it and you go, why? Was there something to be gained by this? No. All they want to do is just destroy. Is it because they're jealous? No, they just, they're just, they just don't care. They just want to destroy. Nowadays, we put labels on it. Sociopath, psychopath. A person who is under the influence of evil will try to be able to destroy, harm, hurt, and you can't figure out why. And so, so often, we get so hurt. We get so hurt when we see that somebody does something. They're our brother, our sister. They're our cousins. They're our neighbor. They are people that we have been friends with for years, whatever it might. And then all of a sudden, bam, it comes out of nowhere. And we say, well, let's just give them a bam right back. As Christians, we have to back up and we have to say, we can't repay evil with evil. We can't repay insult with insult. Because God's eyes are watching he knows how to be able to take care of this situation and to speak to that issue. And I'll tell you what, there are times in which there is no remedy and we simply have to turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile, and we've got to do the best that we can in order to try to seek peace, even with those with, with whom we would regard as being horribly evil. So we, we have to... We have to bear this in mind that, that God knows how to be able to deal with these situations. Now, in verse 15, he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Um, Luther is going to be talking about this a little bit here. And we always say this too. You know, you don't have to go out knocking on doors. You don't have to pull the Jehovah's Witness thing. Um, it would appear as though the Jehovah's Witnesses are much more righteous than you or me because they zealously are willing to give up that Saturday to go out and hand out pamphlets and knock on doors. Um, Mormons spend two years of their lives at their own expense going out into the world and proselytizing. And you say, you know, I feel kind of guilty. Like, I, like maybe I'm, I'm not a very good witness uh, and I haven't challenged my neighbor. And I, well you find that this is true, just be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. And oftentimes it is in the face of evil and sin, your response to it is what causes people to ask you why you're different. And if you say, if you, I want to say between you and God, if you say, I am willing to speak of my faith. Lord, it's up to you. And now all of a sudden you're going to discover that somebody comes to you and says, what is it 
that you have that I don't have? Why is it that you are able to be like this and not like this? And maybe they'll even say to you, you know, they might, they might open up to you and tell you about their pain and their struggle, and they might even ask you how to be able to deal with it. And you know what? When that happens, open your mouth and tell them. Open your mouth and tell them. Because that's where God is opening up doors and he wants people to see the gospel in this way that where you're not hitting people over the head, you're not banging on the door. But God does have lots of people out there that really, really want to be able to hear the gospel. They do. They want to know that there's a God who cares. They want to know that there's a God who sees. They want to know that there's a God who hears prayers and maybe it's your prayers. Uh, you have to maybe, I think sometimes even in high school, kids think that other kids won't be interested in talking about religion. Let me tell you, it's the most, it's the hottest topic that there is if they would only open up their minds and hearts to this. I, I used to come home from college, and, you know, when you're a college student, you're used to living away from mom and dad and all that kind of stuff, so... You go out and you see your friends and then, you know, there's a party here and there's a party there. And I go to these parties and, you know, I get home about 2 o'clock in the morning and there is my mother with bags under her eyes as I walked into the door, you know. Where have you been? I said, I had the most interesting theological discussion. <laughs> Guess what? When you hang out with the publicans and the tax collectors, they want to know about God. They sometimes are searching. They sometimes, even when they've had two beers too many, are now all of a sudden willing to speak about what their true anxieties and their fears are. I had a friend of mine who was like this. He's the nicest guy in the world. He's, he, he's, he's a very, very happy man today, and he's got tons and tons of grandkids. But this friend of mine, when he drank too much, uh, every single fear that he had emerged in him. And we were such good friends that when he got intoxicated like this, um, he could not hear anybody else's voice except for mine. And you know what it is that was really deep down inside of his soul? When he was in high school, his best friend died in a motorcycle accident. And his friend was, in his mind, a person who was better than he was in so many things. He was a better athlete. He was a better student. He was a nicer guy, maybe. I don't think it was possible, but he thought so. And he kept saying to himself, why did God let him die and not me? This has happened in families where they've lost a sibling and the kids are struggling and asking, God, why didn't you take me instead of my brother or my sister? And that is in their soul. And then all of a sudden one day they open up to you and they say, why? And we don't always know the answer. We don't always, of course, want to be it. The first thing we want to say is, 
we want to say God doesn't choose based upon our works, right? That's why we're Lutherans. God doesn't choose the good or the, uh, take the lives of the evil and leave, the, leave those who are good. He takes the good as well as the evil. He makes the sun shine upon the just and the unjust. And yet, there are those days when somebody's going to say, what's this hope that lies within you? And they're probably not going to say it if you're plotting how to get revenge upon your enemies. So, five minutes. Then comes this magnificent confession of that gospel, isn't it? It is verse 17. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all. Um, in the adult class, I tried to be able to explain the difference between the Lutheran understanding of the sacrament and the Roman Catholic understanding of the sacrament. Roman Catholics' understanding of the sacrament is that it is a sacrifice that the priest is re-sacrificing the flesh of Christ, offering it to God in order to obtain this forgiveness which God would then give. And if the priest didn't do it, you can't get forgiveness. The idea being that basically Christ is suffering again and again. It's, it, they have basically taken the Old Testament theology of sacrifice and they brought it into the New Testament just as the priest there was offering up sacrifice and the people's sins were being forgiven over and over and over again because the sacrifice was being made over and over and over again, it says in the book of Hebrews, no, this sacrifice of Christ was once and for all. That there at the cross, that sacrifice that Christ made for us, all sin for all time has been actually pardoned. And now in our sacrament, this is nothing but a sluice coming from heaven where God is giving to you what it is that Christ has already obtained for you. So, in other words, you can have God's forgiveness not through the actions of the priest or the actions of the pastor which have obtained this for you. Rather, this has been obtained by Christ and in that sacrament, here it comes. And so when Peter says, once and for all, he was sacrificed he isn't sacrificed over and over and over again. And there too was a major change in the Reformation. The sacrament became for us a blessed thing rather than a means through which the church could actually tyrannize the conscience or even hold entire nations captive as the popes would do when they would claim that they would excommunicate anybody who didn't obey what the pope was saying. They liberated the church, from the tyranny that came through that understanding of the Mass. All right, let's read on. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Here, I mean, you talk about, again, Reformation theology, what? That this one who was righteous died for us who have no righteousness of our own. Everybody is unrighteous. For what purpose? To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit through whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison.
prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built and built, period. Now, who was preaching? Here comes the great mystery. I've got it down here. This Jesus who was crucified at the cross, he was preaching in the days of Noah? He was actually back there. Now, some have said, you know, this is like the spirits in prison. You know, it says purgatory. He actually went and preached to those. He also went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. We don't, this is a, this is a hard saying. Now he goes to the ark. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And here's where the NIV sins. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also not the removal of the dirt of the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. We, uh, do we, you notice that when we, ever have, we have a baptism at the beginning of service that we start with this whole Noah's Ark thing and the flood, right? He is saying that in the same way in which that took place, that flood took place back there, this is what's happening in baptism. Baptism now saves you, he says. Can we possibly get our Reformed cousins to understand what the heck that phrase means? I was down in Galveston, Texas that summer that I, I was the beach minister at Galveston. Say it's just like retirement. Every day I was wearing a swimsuit, and um, that's what I'm going to do when I retire. I wear a swimsuit. Um, but we, uh, they had this um, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ was sending out all their people onto the beaches to do the same thing that I was doing. They were using their four spiritual laws. But they had this Bible study, and this guy's taking up this text. Baptism is a symbol of what we give to God. Really? You think that's any different than what it is that a Roman Catholic... Roman Catholics at least have to do a lot of good works. Reform, all they have to do is just say they believe in Jesus and they accept Him and let baptism serve as a symbol of what I gave to Him. Baptism saves you, not obviously as some mere symbolic thing where you wash off the, the dirt of your flesh and so on and so forth as a symbol of your heart being cleansed no, that's not what it is. It's First of all, it is a statement of your own clear conscience towards God, but he says, through the resurrection of Christ. Paul says it. Did you not know when you were baptized into Christ that you were baptized into his death? That you are literally, truly, and actually in your baptism united to Christ so that every one of you who has been baptized has already died. And you were brought back to life. When you die, you don't die. You already have passed from death to life. 
That's the reason why it is that we can so confidently say we are going to be with Christ when we die because we did already die. And that's what baptism promises us. We're united to Christ in the resurrection. In the churches of northern Germany, which um, all of you are going to see when you join the tour that we take this coming summer, they will have big, beautiful ships hanging from the ceiling. We've been trying to steal every ship that Gordon Coulson has made for this purpose. He's, he's a shipbuilder, by the way. See, this is, this is what, what, what do you do with a surgeon when he retires? He uses his fingers to make little tiny ships with masts and sails. They put those ships up there because the ship is a symbol of the church. That God takes us in our baptism and he puts us into this ship, this ark of the church. And all the world and all that it brings upon us as God brings down his wrath upon the world, as there's death, as there's war, there's bloodshed and such, we're in the ship when we're baptized into Christ. And that ship, just like the ark, rises with the condemnation that takes place in the world. And on that last day, that door is opened and we step out just like Noah did with his family into a new world. That's exactly what happens when we're baptized into Christ. We're five minutes over. Who has been watching that time? You guys. All right. All right. Um, let's uh, close with a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.